On the show today, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer discuss the hot political stories of the week. Then Chris Gardner from the Independent Contractors and Business Association joins us in studio. Good morning, Shane Woodford here. Welcome to Inside Politics. Uh, real pleasure to be joined on the phone by Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sons of Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Well, uh, it looked like a quiet week about Tuesday, and then things just kind of exploded. Uh, Leonard Krogh uh, resurrecting some of that numbers game chatter that we had sort of the beginning of the Horgan government's uh, reign here, uh, obviously running for mayor of Nanaimo. I talked to Hamish Telford, a uh, political science professor at the University of Fraser Valley, who uh, basically told me that maybe the uh, Premier John Horgan is, uh, is maybe regretting not treating Mr. Krogh a little better. So, Keith, I guess first question to you. If Leonard Krogh was a cabinet minister, would we be even discussing this? Well, if he was in cabinet, he would still be in cabinet. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big plum job. Uh, so there's a lot of history here. Leonard Krogh was one of the so-called Baker's Dozen that took down Carol James as leader. That's something John Horgan uh, really, it really upset John Horgan back then. I remember him, um, I remember telling John Horgan, uh, we were in the hotel room when this was all evolving. I said, I guess you guys are going to have to start to reach out to each other. Uh, and sort of heal things. He said, yeah, but I'm not the reaching out type of guy. And <laughs> that's John Horgan. And uh, I, I'm not sure uh, Krogh was ever going to make the bar for cabinet, given that uh, his role in that. Uh, I'm not saying John Horgan carries grudges, but the NDP is notorious for grudge carrying. For go, It goes on for decades. So, uh, you know, this has been rumored for months. I was uh, joking with uh, Leonard Krogh a few months ago. Is he going to go be the guy to go in and clean up Nanaimo City Hall? He wasn't denying it back then. Now he's making it clear that he is the guy about to do that. And that will set up a very interesting by-election, which I think the NDP should have no trouble holding. But history tells us in B.C. governments do have a trouble hanging on to seats in a by-election. But this one is a safe NDP seat. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that Nanaimo City Hall needs desperately some cleanup, by the way. Uh, Vaughn, uh, Mr. Krogh, uh, nothing but pleasant to, to uh, his NDP colleagues, uh, not really making any, you know, airing any griefs or anything. And, and Mr. Horgan certainly was uh, was not, uh, you know, incriminating of, of Mr. Krogh. And in, in fairness, Leonard isn't going to stick Horgan, uh, you know, with any kind of bad blood because he needs him if he wins the mayorship on all, all sorts of fronts. Yeah, look, uh, Krogh let his colleagues know some time ago that he was thinking of running for mayor of Nanaimo. And you're right, Nanaimo City Hall badly needs a cleanup, so I think he'll be welcome there. Um, he let his colleagues know that, and I think... Had the premier come along and said, we'll put you in cabinet, uh, he would have stayed. But the, the problem for that is if you, start, if you start letting your members bargain for cabinet posts, uh, you can get into a lot of trouble as a premier. And the other thing is this is a gender-balanced cabinet. So in order to bring Krogh in and maintain gender balance, the premier would have had to drop one of the other men in cabinet for no reason other than the fact that he needed to make room for Leonard. Or he would have had to appoint another woman to cabinet as well to maintain the gender balance. So it, was, it wasn't a road that, that Horgan was prepared to go down. Um, yes, it's true that it's a safe NDP seat and that Krogh says he doesn't think uh, that you know, there's any chance the New Democrats are going to lose it. And the only thing I would say about all that is uh, in the industry that I'm in and that you're in, we specialize in telling people that things can't happen. Uh, Rob Ford's brother becoming Premier of Ontario, <laughs> Trump becoming President, Brexit uh, passing, the NDP ending up in power in Alberta, uh, Christy Clark winning the election in 2013, losing it in 2017. I mean, there's a long list. So I would say it's not out of the question that that seat could go the other way. I think it's true that it will not just be a by-election. It will be a referendum, in effect, on the fate of the government, mm -hmm. and because Krogh has been nice enough to his colleagues to say that he won't step down until after the civic election in October, the New Democrats will at least have as much as six months to get ready for the by-election. Absolutely, and by-elections are a different animal than a general election, as we all know. Uh, not that you can, uh, not that it's an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, Keith, but uh, as we all remember, in 2012, Chilliwack was considered an absolute safe liberal seat. In the by-election, it flipped to the NDP. Uh, other than speculation tax, perhaps, do you see any kind of things stirring in the riding that could uh, kick up resentment against the government, or no? 
Well, it depends on the violations held. So I, I think, and, and Krogus suggested this, he thinks the violation is going to be held earlier than later. If it's held later, so John Horgan will have six months in which to call that by-election. So uh, presuming Krog gives it up in October 20th or when he's sworn in the following week or so, we're looking at a by-election before late April. Uh, well, a couple things happen in the new year. The speculation tax takes effect, which is an issue in Nanaimo. You've also got the payroll tax taking effect, which hits ding small businesses big time and nonprofits and charities to the point of paying, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Municipalities are going to start raising property taxes to cover their share of this. So that tax is going to be very unpopular pretty quickly. And I, that's why I think Horgan's probably going to have to call that by election before the new year or early in the new year before those issues can take hold in the community. But uh, right now, you know, John Horgan's a pretty popular guy. Uh, the NDP government hasn't really done a heck of a lot right now to turn uh, their own supporters against them. I ex expect Horgan's going to use his own personal popularity to be up in that riding. It's only just, you know, an hour and a half north of his riding uh, that he can access pretty quickly. He's going he's gonna to be in there quite a bit during the by-election. So I, I don't, other than that, I don't see any real issues popping up on the, on the screen that are going to drag that NDP down. But as Vaughn says, I mean, that's a nice little checklist Vaughn had of uh, how many issues out there. You, mm -hmm. oh, this will never happen, and then they do happen. So uh, you, you got to keep that in mind in, in the Nanaimo by-election. Uh, Vaughn, what did you think of the Liberals' response? Uh, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, Andrew Wilkinson saying, ooh, it's a risky move. Yeah, no, he's... Look, the, the, this is a test for Wilkinson, and there's two or three things of it that are a test. I mean, the first is for Wilkinson to go out and find a candidate that's credible there, that can win, and then find some issues. I think you're right. The, 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 I'm sure the New Democrats didn't think about this when they announced the speculation tax, but it does apply to Nanaimo. And uh, they said it was because, you know, housing is unaffordable there and there's a shortage of housing, but there will be an issue there. So there's that. Uh, there are other issues. And, there, you know, there's, there are signs we're starting to see now that the housing market is softening, that maybe even construction is softening a bit. And Canada's got trade troubles with the United States. So... Um, you know, BC economy is a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, things might not look as rosy by the end of the year, and that might be an issue that works for the Liberals as well. The one thing about it, though, is that I think it will be clear if there's a by-election in Nanaimo, even by the end of the year, that it's not just to fill one seat in the legislature, that it really is something that could tip the entire government into an early provincial election. So it will be unlike any other by-election in modern times in British Columbia, even the, even the famous one in, in Kamloops in 1981, where the balance in the House was precarious and the Socreds needed to win it and did, even that one, um, wasn't, it wasn't as close in the House then as this one will be. Uh, have, are, have either of you heard of any other MLAs, liberal or otherwise, that, that are considering a jump down to civic politics? I know uh, Rich Coleman's name has sort of been floated out there as possibly being interested in the Langley mayorship, but uh, I don't know how serious or not he may or may not be. Well, uh, yeah, Coleman tops the list of speculation that people are going to bail early. Uh, even a rumor that he's going to run for mayor of Surrey, but uh, I'd be surprised if he does that. I wouldn't be surprised if Rich left earlier than 2021. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if, if stalwarts like Mike DeYoung and even Shirley Bond left earlier than 2021, but not to say that they're going to enter mayoralty politics. A lot of these guys are veteran pol politicos. They've got their pensions. I'm not sure they really need another job, um, which is why I don't think you're going to see a lot of movement other than uh, Leonard Crow, maybe one or two others. All right. Uh, just one quick issue that's just popped up uh, before the commercial break. Uh, Doug Ford is holding a press conference as we speak. He's going to direct the Ontario Attorney General to uh, challenge the implementation of the carbon tax. Uh, Scott Moen, Saskatchewan, to nobody's surprise, has jumped in. I don't know if there's, uh, there's obviously going to be roadblocks there, but I don't know if that fight will have any impacts here in B.C. with our own carbon tax or not, Vaughn. Well, the other thing about Ontario is they did not go themselves to a carbon tax. They went to cap-and-trade, which is a much more elaborate scheme and more difficult to untangle. So they're also talking about somehow or other untangling that. And then you're right, the federal government is saying if you don't have uh, an equivalent scheme in Ontario, we will impose it on you. So... Uh, you know, Saskatchewan and Ontario are now going to be joining in court fight uh, the federal scheme while Alberta and British Columbia are in step behind it. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, uh, sorry, Keith on that? 
Well, you know, it, the equation also changes if Jason Kenney becomes Premier of Alberta. Yeah. It's going to be lock, stock, and barrel with uh, Moe and Ford on this issue. And it's going to be in the odds favor Kenney becoming Premier. And that's going to be a fascinating constitutional face-off on a number of issues, I think, between those three Premiers and, and Justin Trudeau. And I circle back to the back to Kinder Morgan and the court case BC is involved in, uh, and more than one environmental lawyer has pointed out to me that they're worried that BC actually, if they win that court case, uh, demanding BC have more jurisdictional power over regulations, that that just gives Kenny, Moe, and Ford more power mm. over regulations affecting the environment, and they shudder at the thought of that. So ironically, you're going to have a lot of people uh, who are against those three premiers quietly cheering on the uh, federal government and its, its battle with BC over the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Yeah, interesting times. Uh, let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll touch base on the bargaining front with some interesting news coming down this week. More with Keith and Vaughn after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, guys, yeah, you've done uh, some stories on this already, the significant bargaining challenge that faces the provincial government as hundreds of thousands of workers uh, will go out to look to renew deals uh, in the new year. Uh, a bit of a preemptive strike by the Horgan government as they come to a tentative deal with the BCGU affecting about 26,000 uh, workers. Uh, Keith, what can you sort of divine from that deal, if anything, that, that could affect or look at strategy-wise or, or what the Horgan government is hunting for here? Well, the GU deal usually sets the sets the pattern for other deals. So there's upwards of 300,000 public sector workers up for contract renewals uh, by March 31st. That includes the BC Teachers Federation, QP, college faculty, uh, doctors, nurses, and the BCGU. So it's a three-year deal, which suggests that's what the government's going to be pushing it for with other unions. Uh, it's uh, the rumor. No, no figures have been released. There's been some rumors on Twitter that it's two percent a year, which strikes me is a bit high. Now, start doing the math here. This is where it becomes very interesting for the NDP government as they try to balance the budget. A 1% increase across the board uh, is roughly $300 million cost to the provincial treasury. So 2% is $600 million. And that's not just the cost of the GU. That's right across the board for everybody. Well, $600 million uh, added to the budget is uh, is a huge amount of money. And it's, again, I'm not saying it's a 2% for the GU. It's, just been, it's been rumored out there. But it's probably in, the, in excess of at least 1%. And, and the unions, after being squeezed by the B.C. Liberals for well more than a decade, are understandably thinking that, well, we've got now our, our the political party, we back in power, we expect a little more. And that's the that's the, the riddle Carol James is facing. How can she grant significant wage increases across the board when the cost could be so high to her budget that it wipes out her precariously small, razor-thin surplus of $219 million this year, and not much more next year or the following year. So that's the challenge James has. It's good for them to get this thing out of the gate fast. Congratulations. Three-year deal. But now the real tough work begins with QP, ECTF, and college faculty to get them to swallow a much lower wage increase than they had expectations of going in. Sounds like a bit of a rock-and-a-hard-place situation, Vaughn. Yeah, I mean, it's an accomplishment for the government because they have all these contracts expiring next year and they have to negotiate them and they have to go forward and they don't want strikes in the public sector and they want the unions to agree. So getting going this early is a good thing and it does set the tone, uh, can set the standard for the rest of the public sector. Um, if uh, it's 2, 2, and 2, however, yeah, 2% uh, adds across the board for everybody in the first year would add six hundred million dollars to the wage bill in the second year because there's another two it would the twos the two twos together would add make it one point two billion on the wage bill and uh, the three twos together would make it one point eight billion so that's going to use up an awful lot of the discretionary money and the safety margins in the budget over the next few years and and that's that's a big deal uh, for Carol James and the NDP and put some strain on their budget. There's a very interesting, uh, it's always interesting what the government decides to call the wage mandate. Mm. Uh, they have a mandate, uh, cabinet sets it,
it for the entire public sector, and they try to treat everybody evenly with, you know, there'll be exceptions, uh, special cases. But this one is called the Sustainable Services Mandate, which the, the pitch the New Democrats are making there, and they're making it to unions like the gov uh, government employees that, you know, you may not get quite as much money as you were hoping for, but this is going to sustain the increased services that we're adding. So the GEU, for example, will get the jobs in the cannabis stores. Mm. The GEU will probably get a lot of the unionized jobs in the new child care centers. So the government is kind of making a pitch to the unions that, yeah, cut us a little bit of slack on the pay side because we're going to have all these expanded services across the public sector. Very interesting. Uh, we talked a little about this last week, but you guys weren't on the panel. And I'm really curious to get your sense of this. Uh, BCTF, of course, is one of the, the negotiations that constantly gets some spotlight because of uh, the friction in the with the past government over a number of cycles. Different dynamic, obviously, this time. But Glenn Hansman says they're looking to make up a significant loss ground on wages. Okay, uh, I think we all expect uh, that that's what their approach is going to be. But where my ears perked up is he tied the affordability issue into contract negotiations. Uh, Keith, interesting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the CF negotiations are interesting no matter what. It's, and they're the outlier here. Uh, VCGU has a history of settling very quickly and pragmatically and not going to the mats on this. But the TF is quite the opposite, very unpredictable. Although Glenn Hansen, I think, is a pretty pretty good uh, president of the BCTF and pretty reasonable. But, yeah, he's talked about things like moving allowances. Uh, you know, again, the TF has long been arguing that the, the BC teachers have to be paid commensurate with uh, teachers in Alberta and Ontario, which means big pay hikes. And he does raise the, the valid point that you can't expect to attract teachers in Metro Vancouver and pay them $50,000 a year. You just The cost of living there, the cost of housing, rental or buying, is so prohibitively high that some of these starting salaries are just non-starters for attracting professionals. So I think that's the one contract negotiation I'm going to be fascinated by to see how it, how it evolves because it's not just a straight salary increase. They're going to be creative at the table in terms of whether it's moving allowances, mm -hmm. restructuring of the salary grid for teachers. There's a you know, um, a shortage of math teachers, science teachers, and French immersion t teachers. And are they suddenly going to be given much higher increases than the other uh, teachers of other subjects? It's uh, it's going to be a pivotal series of talks. Absolutely. And then there's the and teacher shortage. Saying, uh, Shane, that the uh, the matters arriving arising out of the Supreme Court of Canada decision are still not all settled. There's shortages. There ratios and that that they're pushing. I would say another union that will be much tougher to get a deal with than the BCGEU is probably the nurses. Hmm. There are safety issues, shortage issues, recruitment issues with nurses, and I'm not sure they will necessarily accept uh, the BCGEU settlement. And the other thing we're going to be looking at, and, and remember, we're still in speculation area yet, that the, the full details aren't out, and of course the union hasn't approved it, is, is there a Me Too clauses? Because hmm. some of the unions that go first also negotiate Me Too clauses so that if another union comes along later and gets a better deal, they can access that as well. Very interesting times. Uh, we're going to get lots of uh, stories out of that, I'm sure, and plenty of topics for future shows. Uh, let's take a quick break and get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour. After that, we'll continue our conversation with Keith and Vaughn, and we'll talk a little bit about the uh, housing crisis, always a good issue to dive into. Most interesting, some comments from former Premier Mike Harcourt. More on Radio NL right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to the Vancouver Sons of Von Palmer, Global BC's Keith Baldry. Uh, guys, housing is always an issue, a big crisis that has encompassed the province. Used to be a Metro Vancouver issue, of course, uh, now spilling well over that. Uh, former Premier Mike Harcourt weighed in on that in a big way, Vaughn. Yeah, former Premier Harcourt offering, I think, some fairly useful advice to the New Democrats, whether they take it or not, and some important insights. And he said three or four things. Uh, he said, first of all, uh, it's not a crisis. Get used to it. It's a permanent condition. Mm. Uh, second thing he said is I think we have to recognize, particularly in Metro Vancouver, that the era of the single-family home is a thing of the past, that it's gone, that you're going to have to accept that the future... Uh, including housing for families. It's going to be row housing, two- and three-bedroom uh, townhouses, 
and you're going to have to accept much greater density around transit stations, bus stops, uh, around schools, he said. You know, you got schools closing because there's no kids in them. You should increase the housing density and have families move in and save the schools. So uh, uh, fairly far-reaching insights from Harcourt. I think, as I said, I was impressed, uh, impressed with how articulate he is. You know, he's 75 years old. He had that terrible accident uh, mm-hmm. some years ago, but uh, made a lot of sense. Uh, having said that, I don't know if the New Democrats listen to him. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he's wrong. And the one thing I perked up was that he did say in there, uh, if I read your column correctly, Vaughn, that, uh, that he's not in politics anymore, so he's not constrained with his comments. Uh, Keith? That's, that's right. He made the point. He, he's free to speak his mind now. Uh, he made the comments at a housing forum here in Victoria, very well attended. A lot of well-known uh, people around the city in attendance to this thing, and I think his his talk was very well received. It's interesting. I went. He, he was also very critical of the speculation tax. Mm-hmm. This, this is not a speculation tax. He he called for the proverbial uh, second look that um, Carol James has to revisit this tax. It's unfairly capturing. Uh, British Columbians and Canadians that's not supposed to capture. And I, I ran into him the next day. He, he stayed over and was hanging around the legislature having meetings. And we went for a little walk. And he was telling me that a number of staff people in the government agree with, agree, agree with him and have gone out of their way to tell him they agree with his analysis. Mm. And it's going to be interesting whether that has any impact on Carol James's um, budget at the end of the day. Because keep in mind, the speculation tax... We don't know the regulations. We don't know the rules. It's still just sort of a news release. It's not, it's not been passed into law. It doesn't take effect until the new year. And so the devil's in the details. And I just wonder if she's re- going to be revisiting those details. Because as a line item in the budget, it's not a huge thing. It's only $200 million over the course of a year, which you know is, almost represents the size of her surplus. But she's got room to tinker, I think, on that particular tax. And Mike Harcourt, who's no, uh, no, he's not exactly a no Nobody within this government yeah. is pushing for big changes. Yeah, and he also really emphasized supply, supply, supply. Yes. Vaughn, uh, does does his does his sort of take on this have enough weight to, to change any minds back there? Or no? Well, you know, if if they don't listen to them then I think a year from now we're going to be talking about how their drive to deal with affordability hasn't really worked. Because when Harcourt is saying supply, 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 I, what he's really saying is that in the long run, if you want to address um, this problem, it's called the missing middle, right? It's a special problem in Vancouver in the housing market, but it happens elsewhere. You end up with a large number of one-bedroom condominiums and a large number of high-end homes that are beyond the reach of anybody who doesn't already own one, mm. and not nearly enough in the middle for families. Uh, it's, a, it's a civic problem, a development problem, an urban urban problem, a schools problem. And Harcourt is saying essentially you're going to have to address that and you're going to have to push. He says you're going to have to push the municipalities to get the projects that are in the pipeline through the pipeline. You've got to get this stuff built. The, the finance ministry can raise taxes with a stroke of a pen. It's easy to raise taxes. But if you just raise taxes and don't deal with supply, you just tackle the demand side and don't deal with supply. Uh, in a year or two, you may find that what's happening is a whole bunch of projects were put on hold because the developers were worried about the taxes and the regulations. And we're already starting to hear that. That's the other thing Keith and I both heard at that forum in Victoria. Just anecdotal at this point, but we're starting to hear about a project or a building that's not being built. I know we're hearing that out of Kamloops and the Okanagan as well. And if that trend multiplies, it has a huge impact, not just on the bottom line of government in terms of revenue. It's going to have an impact on the drive for affordability as well, because supply may start going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Uh, I want to jam a couple quick issues in here as we get near the end of the segment, but uh, one uh, is a local one, the Wildlife Park, uh, which made some headlines provincially because uh, they basically looked at the cost burden from the new employer health tax, uh, the rise in minimum wage, and concluded that uh, over increments to 2020, they're going to face a 200 thousand dollar new annual cost and and their uh, margins are too slim uh, to really kind of put up with that they finally got a meeting with the finance ministry staff last week and where my ears perked up in this story yesterday was uh, according to the wildlife officials they've been told uh, by finance ministry staff that they're going to use monies out of the carbon tax along with other funding from other ministries to try and cover off the costs of the employer health tax we know carol james has said help is coming for nonprofits, uh, groups like that perhaps schools etc keith uh, your thoughts on that well there's that's fascinating because uh 
that means Kel James is going to squeeze other ministries to pay for this, to cover off some of the shortcom- shortfalls of the payroll tax. And she, she just doesn't have any money. There's no money in this budget to, for her to, to maneuver. She's got a contingency fund, it's true, $550 million, but she's got no money to fight wildfires. Uh, so if there's a bad wildfire season, boom, there goes the contingency fund. And mm-hmm. then she's got a, 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 a forecast revenue allowance of $300 million. Um, and that's, that's a nice cushion. But you start opening the door to the wildlife park. Well, the B.C. Liberals presented a litany of, of uh, groups and organizations and sectors that were going to be hit by even more than $200,000 because of this payroll tax. So she starts providing relief, as, as she should, I think, to some of these organizations while well, the dominoes start falling here. And right. we're talking hundreds of organizations going to be lined up, cap in hand, expecting similar relief. And I just don't think she's got the money to, to pay for this stuff, which, again, increasingly it looks like the payroll tax and the speculation tax were written on the proverbial back of a napkin without really thinking it through of the implications of the impact these things were going to have. Vaughn? Yes, the minister said during debate in the legislature that everyone will pay the payroll tax, but now we're starting to see maybe not everyone, nonprofits and charities, maybe not school districts, rather than them, rather than having school districts cut services, maybe they'll be made good. The big problem is that there's one year in the schedule where you'll pay two taxes. There's a double taxing year. There's a year when you'll pay the payroll tax, and they'll still be collecting about half of the old MSP premium. So if you're on a fixed income as a, as a, because you live off government grants or funding formulas, or if you're a charity, or even if you're a government ministry, because government ministries just get a line item budget from central government, uh, what do you do in that double taxation year? Do you get topped up somehow? Um, do you have to cut services? And of course, businesses are saying the same thing. They have to lay people off. But it, it, Keith is, at, is right. This thing is not worked out. The speculation tax and the payroll tax were both announced February the 20th. <laughs> Here we are in mm. June, and we still don't know how they're going to work, and we may not know until later this summer, or with the speculation tax, we may not know how it's going to work until the legislature sits in October. Yeah, uh, real quick, we're almost uh, up against the wall here, Keith, but how short-term are our memories on this FIFA deal thing? I was caught by some of the reaction this week. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it, it's one thing to say we w- w- want to welcome World Cup soccer to Vancouver. That's great. I'm a, I'm a big sports fan. I, I think these things are great. But then you look at the, the fine print, the, the extortionist demands FIFA had of the B.C. taxpayer were unacceptable. I think the NDP made the right call to say no to FIFA. Uh, they wanted uh, potentially to inflict hundreds of millions of dollars of financial penalties on the BC taxpayers to accompany two, maybe three soccer games. And we're not talking Brazil and, and Germany here, folks. We're talking Saudi Arabia and Morocco, maybe. It just wasn't worth it. All right. A final word to you, Vaughn. We're having a salmon announcement uh, right after this show concludes at 10 o'clock uh, this morning. Uh, and, and anything you think coming down the pipe I think there? it's a committee to deal with wild salmon. I know it will surprise people that the new Democrats are appointing a committee or a review to deal with wild salmon, and I don't expect uh, them to say, describe or announce the fate of the leases on the fish farms, which expire June 20th, so just next week, but I don't think we're going to hear today what they're going to do about it, and I'm not sure they'll even answer the question if we ask them. Interesting stuff. Keith, uh, Vaughn, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye, Shane. There we go. Keith Baldry from Global BC and Vaughn Palmer from uh, the Vancouver Sun. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to them again in Inside Politics next week. We'll take a quick break on the show. On the other side, ICBA President Chris Gardner is in studio. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. Uh, the Independent Contractors and Business Association President Chris Gardner was uh, coming through Kamloops uh, this week, arranged to come in studio with me and pre-tape a segment for this show. Uh, unfortunately, the afternoon that he did, I got the dreaded call from daycare to tell me that uh, my little guy had a raging fever. Uh, so I sprinted out of here, house on fire, and uh, Angelo Yakabuchi was uh, kind enough to sit down with Chris uh, for that conversation. Let's take a listen. 
Chris, whole number of issues that the organization is lobbying for that affect Kamloops. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension. Give us your thoughts on what happened with the federal government purchasing those assets. Sure, great. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to be here today. It's it's great to be in the community. Uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, $7.5 billion investment in our energy economy. You know, it's going ahead. That's the good news. But the challenge is how we got to where we are today. The federal government has had to step in, buy the pipeline for $4.5 billion of taxpayer money. Do you agree with that move, Chris? First of well, all, we had a private sector company that was prepared to invest $7.5 billion, uh, had all the approvals in place and was ready to put shovels in the ground. And there's one reason, and one reason only why it, why we didn't start construction, and that's because the government of uh, Premier John Horgan said no. He was going to use every tool in the toolbox to block that project. Um, they were going to be obstructionists. They went to court. They created a, uh, an atmosphere of uncertainty, and the company said, we can't move forward with this project. The only recourse left uh, was for the federal government to step in. Now, on one level, the fact that the, the negative message that, message that sends to investors, not only in Canada, outside of Canada, is that you can't get big projects approved and built in Canada. And so you've got a what we would say is a crisis of confidence in terms of getting major infrastructure projects, responsible resource development projects approved and built in this country. The fact that the federal government had to step in um, it sends a very negative signal. The, the silver lining is we're going to get the pipeline. And the pipeline is vital for our uh, energy economy. And it's, an, it's a, a project of national importance. But it doesn't make any sense, if you step back from it, to have federal taxpayers, Canadian taxpayers, money put at risk when a private sector company had an approved project ready to go. This would not happen in any other jurisdiction in the world. So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about the impact on Kamloops. It would be the interior hub for construction thousands of jobs absolutely vital to the future of this community there are benefit agreements with all the municipalities more than 20 first nations are also involved in this for right now it's it's sort of for me it's a little ambiguous but what is the current state the federal government's come in what happens now with mr horgan's legal action and when can we expect construction to actually start what's happening right now well to the, the province of British Columbia, Oregon, is not is not stepping back. Uh, they're going to continue on with the court challenge, and what they're going what they're challenging is the right to uh, have more jurisdiction over the over the project, the right to limit the flow of oil through the pipeline, uh, to restrict capacity. Uh, it's that kind of uncertainty uh, that caused Kingdom Morgan to say, "Well, hang on, we're not going to go invest 7.5 billion dollars, and we don't know if we're going to have a project at the end of it that we can actually operate." Uh, right now, the federal government is taking over the project. Uh, indications are that const- they will proceed with construction. The federal government is saying we're going to take that risk on uh, the risk of having you know starting to build a project where if they lose in court, if the if the province is successful, uh, the province conceivably would say, well, their whole point is that they want to limit the amount of oil coming through that pipeline. Uh, so they've created a whole range of uncertainty. We think that um, you know again this project was approved went through a rigorous four year period of approvals. 194 conditions were attached to this project. When will work actually start? Like, see, when will Kamloops see the benefits? I mean, is there? A, is there I think work's going to start. Are in the, what we've heard is that work will start in in the summer. Uh, a lot of the contractors are in place. The contracts haven't been signed, sealed, and delivered, but they're close to being uh, f- uh, concluded. And uh, contractors have started to mobilize material and equipment and personnel. So we think in the summer, fall, we're going to see construction activity. But the challenge is what's happening on the ground is this, this, uh, the uncertainty uh, in, in contractors, big and small. The supply chain on this project is enormous. The jobs in communities like Kamloops were vitally important. It's all been put at risk because of the actions of John Horgan. It's irresponsible and reckless, um, and we're going to we're, our long-term prosperity is going to be hurt by this by this kind of uh, decision making. Chris, is is Premier Horgan sacrificing the interior to ensure he has enough votes? on the lower mainland to ensure victory in the next election because tanker traffic up here, frankly, 
no one care. I mean, no one ever talks about tanker traffic or shipping bitumen or anything. It's all about the economic stuff. But is he sacrificing one region of the province for the for the other for political reasons? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think there's two there's two constituencies playing to. One is the environmental wing of the NDP, and the other is the Green Party that's propping up his government uh, in the legislature in Victoria. So he's definitely playing politics. And if, if you if you think of it, a $7.5 billion investment in our economy, the biggest investor, uh, the biggest source of private sector investment in Canada comes from the oil and gas sector. Yet it's vilified at every turn by, by Premier Horgan and those who support him. It doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and it's going to cost us, our long-term prosperity is going is, is to be impacted negatively. Because if you are a large international investor, you're going to look at this whole thing, it's a mess. And you're not going to say, hey, let's go and let's go, you know, start from scratch and, and, and try and get a project approved in British Columbia and Canada. You're going to say, well, no, let's, let's go somewhere else. And what we're seeing is capital leaving Canada. The CEO of RBC said a few weeks ago, capital's leaving Canada. It's been leaving Canada for the last five years. Investment dollars are leaving. Uh, there's been over $40 billion of assets sold in uh, Alberta. Every, nearly every major international uh, energy company has left Canada because you simply can't get anything done. Chris, you have strong views as well on a couple of other topics we'll touch on. The speculation tax is a very controversial issue, I know, in Kamloops as well as the rest of the province. What's the ICBA's point of view on well, that? Our view is very simple. The, the, the point of the tax was to, to solve the, 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 the increased prices in housing that are affecting so many communities across the province. The reality is it's not going to work. It is the wrong solution for the problem that they are trying to fix. The solution is really twofold. One is supply. Um, you have to increase, you have to get more supply into the market and you have to look at density and you have to look at the approval process. We need to, so you need city halls across the province have to act faster to be able to review projects to get them approved. In, in the lower mainland, you, you can wait up to four years to get a building permit. So it'll take you longer to get a project approved and permitted than it will to build it. Um, so we need more supply and that, that is vitally important. And, and that's the key to this. The solution is not to add more layers of taxes. Uh, and you've got the speculation tax. You've got the quote-unquote... And it's not a speculation tax. It's not going to stop speculation. You've got the education tax. I would, would put quotes around that. It's not an education tax. Uh, they've increased the foreign buyers uh, tax. The foreign, foreign investment in this province was really only affecting a very small part of the market in Vancouver at the very high end. Um, so wrong solutions. It's going to, again, impact our economy in a negative way. It's not going to help housing affordability. Now, you represent members of the Independent Contractors and Business Association. What is the direct correlation between the speculation tax and what impact does it have specifically on your members in Kamloops and the rest of British Columbia? Well, I think you have to look at it this way. If you are uh, if you're retired and you have a home and, 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 and all of a sudden you're on, you're on a fixed income and you've now got an education tax on, on homes that have been assessed at a high value, that doesn't make any sense. That's not going to increase supply. You're going to be, are you forcing people to sell their homes? Is that a good thing? Um, in terms of speculation, how is that going to increase supply? So for young families starting out, you need more supply on the market. You need, to, you need to look at issues around density. The challenge is, whether it's a senior's home, uh, a, a retirement complex, a hospital, every time there's a new project proposed in so many neighborhoods, you'll get people coming out saying, no, we don't want our neighborhood to change, build that somewhere else. And we've really got to have a conversation around density and putting more supply on the market in a way that makes sense. Speculation tax is not going to work. Um, and we need a vibrant real estate sector in terms of the jobs and construction that it provides and the opportunities for young people to work and to buy homes. So more supply, more jobs, that's the answer. More taxes, higher taxes, that's not the answer. Hey Chris, one last topic before we let you go. Apportional representation, uh, I'm not sure if it's gathering a lot of traction anywhere, but what are your thoughts from the ICBA's point of view on what the government has proposed? Well, our thoughts is that it's crazy. It's a crazy idea, and it doesn't work. And take a look at Italy. Since World War II, Italy's had nearly one government every single year. So 73 different governments since World War II. Canada's had 22. A government every year doesn't help your economic prosperity, doesn't create stability, doesn't create an environment where you can attract business and, and grow your economy. It will lead to more parties. We'll have, you, know, you go to countries where there are um, proportional representation ballots, you'll have 27, 35, 40, 50 parties, fringe parties from all over the spectrum um, getting elected. 
And then after the election, you've got 15 parties. They've got all got to have, you know, there's those backroom negotiating deals that nobody knows about to form a government. Then they finally form a government, and then the government functions for eight months or 12 months, and then it collapses. We don't need that kind of instability in Canada. And the other thing that's going to happen is you're going to lose your MLA. Right now, you know who your MLAs are. Whether you agree with them or not, you can walk in their office, say, I've got a problem, help me fix it, they'll help you fix it. Under proportional representation, you're going to lose that, the riding's going to expand, you won't know who your MLA is. Hey, Chris Gardner of the ICBA, thanks very much for dropping by, Chris. Great. Thank you. There we go. That was Angela Yakabuchi talking to Chris Gardner, president of the ICBA. I do want to add, proportional representation works great in a lot of countries. Uh, it doesn't work great in Italy. It doesn't work great in some others. And you won't lose your MLA. That's a little bit of fear-mongering there. Let's have an adult debate about it. See who play. That was it for the live on-air radio portion of the show, but I do like to put in some special bonus content where I can, and I have two segments this week you'll only hear on the podcast version of this show. The first is with University of the Fraser Valley Associate Professor of Political Science, Hamish Telford. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by University of the Fraser Valley Associate Professor in Political Science, Hamish Telford. Hamish, how are you, buddy? Great, thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. No, always good to talk to you. Uh, hey, a lot of stuff to dive into. I want to talk a little bit about the numbers game off the top. A uh, really interesting story developing over the weekend, uh, all but confirmed now that Leonard Krogh, uh, who is, of course, the NDP MLA for the Nanaimo area, is uh, going to step down from provincial politics and take a shot at the Nanaimo mayor's chair. And God only knows <laughs> Nanaimo needs something in the way of common sense right now. But uh, on the political scene, it's raised a bit of a, a bit of a curious case because, uh, and of course, there's you know lots of dominoes have yet to fall, so we don't know how things will progress, but it could trigger a by-election. Uh, it is a riding long held by the NDP, but, you know, by-elections are their own animal, as Chilliwack found out in 2012. Uh, should the Liberals grab it, then suddenly we're at 43-43. So as, as we look at this thing with the numbers game in mind, Hamish, uh, so what are you sort of thinking the dynamic could be here? Yes, well, I think that perhaps Mr. Horgan is regretting not including Mr. Krogan in, in cabinet. I think some eyebrows were raised when he wasn't chosen for cabinet, a, mm. a veteran member, capable member of the NDP in the legislature. But such as it is, uh, Mr. Krog is looking for more interesting opportunities and, and perhaps running the city of Nanaimo uh, would be that opportunity for him. Um, the timing of this is is interesting. It's, it's the government gets to control a lot of of what happens here. If Mr. Krogh does decide uh, to take a run at it, um, I'm sure he'll do this in consultation with with the party. Um, so the government gets to choose when they hold the by election. The government gets to choose when they recall the legislature. Um, and so I, I suspect the government will try and call a quick by election and get him replaced quickly, so that. They don't get into the kind of number games that, that you're talking about. Um, but, you know, things are, are possible. You mentioned the Chilliwack by-election where the NDP took a seat where nobody expected them to take it. And that happened as a result of, of vote splitting. There was a conservative candidate um, as well as the liberal candidate, both now liberals and in the legislature, incidentally. And, and I think that this is perhaps the, the greatest unknown. You know, if the Greens run a strong candidate in the by-election as well, it's it's conceivable that the NDP and Greens split the vote, allowing the Liberals to, to come up the middle. So there, are, there will be things outside the government's control at the end of the day, and it's, it presents a, a challenge for them. Yeah, and, and Mike Smith of the province who broke the story uh, is speculating on Twitter that he's sort of hearing rumblings that the Greens could uh, not run a candidate and choose to support whoever the NDP runs. However, Andrew Weaver, as is his want, is muddying those waters on Twitter, saying instead uh, <laughs> he'd be ready to support anybody who would endorse the B.C. Greens candidate and suggesting kind of suddenly the NDP should stay Episode. So, uh, do you think that the two parties will be able to come to terms on this, or are we going to face sort of that vote, vote splitting challenge? Obviously, it's in the interest of both parties uh, to to maintain uh, their uh, alliance in the legislature. So, it would make sense for them to come uh, to uh, an arrangement on on the by election. Uh, but uh, egos play a part here. Of course, it's also in the interest of the Green Party to, to grow their party. Um, they, they came up one seat short of getting uh, party status in the legislature. They were given that in the agreement, uh, governing agreement with the NDP, but to have four seats in the legislature, uh, they wouldn't need the NDP's help on that. So um, I, I'm sure that the Greens would love a fourth seat. And, and uh, what it takes for them to, to back down um, 
I don't know. What, what does Mr. Horgan have to offer <laughs> to, yeah. to get Andrew Weaver to back off on it? Yeah, and the other thing that sort of slid by, uh, it was also reported by Mike Smith in this uh, Leonard Krogh situation, obviously getting the limelight because of its ramifications on government, but uh, apparently Rich Coleman may also be considering a run for, uh, for the Langley mayorship, which then again would impact the numbers as well. Yeah, well, was it Langley or Surrey? Um, I heard Langley, but maybe Surrey. I mean, he obviously hasn't announced anything, so there's a whole lot of speculation going in here, but I believe it was Langley, but I, I totally could be wrong on that, Hamish. Yeah, um, certainly. And, and again, um, you know, Rich Coleman was, was a leader in the government and, and you know, played every important cabinet uh, role under two premiers. Uh, I suspect he's, and now he's not even the interim leader. Andrew Wilkerson has taken over on a full-time basis. Rich Coleman seems to be a man with unlimited amount of, of energy. Uh, I, I suspect he's rather bored on, on the opposition side of, of the House after running things for, for so long. Um, and, and, you know, he's perhaps concluding that the NDP Green Alliance is here to stay for a while, and he wants something more interesting to do as well. And uh, this is his opportunity. We have municipal elections every four years now, so it comes up this year, won't come up again for four years. Um, and, and one would have to think that he would be a, a strong candidate for mayor for whatever city he's running in. <laughs> yeah, I think he would be too. Uh, just changing topics a little bit, because I'm really curious to kind of get your take. As we watch this proportional representation process unfold towards uh, the mayor in referendum uh, to take place late October uh, through November. Uh, thoughts on, I mean, there's the Liberals, of course, are doing this rigged game thing. Uh, the NDP are saying, hey, listen, people are going to make a choice. Uh, yet there seems to be a fair amount of complexity to the three ballot choices we have and, and little time to explain them. Uh, just curious to get kind of your sense of how you perceive this whole thing. Again, I've always had uh, issues with, with the process that the government has undertaken here. Uh, I do like the idea of um, having a referendum where you get to vote on first whether or not to keep the first-past-the-post system and then a range of options thereafter. Uh, what would have been useful is if there was a desire for change, that there be a second referendum sort of pitting first past the post um, against a particular uh, system of proportional representation. So let's say of the three uh, that are on the ballot this time, option B uh, is, is the most popular. Let's have a straight up referendum on option B to see if that has the support of a majority. It was this kind of two-step process that was used in New Zealand. The first referendum mm -hmm. was styled as an indicative referendum to see where the public was. The second referendum on a particular type of proportional representation was binding with the understanding that there would be a third follow-up referendum after a period of time to, to endorse the, the new system or go back to the old one. So I think um, we're, we are missing a step here in, in the process. And why that is the case, I don't know. The, as you say, the Liberals are speculating it's because the NDP and Greens are trying to stack the deck in, in favor of proportional representation. Uh, my sort of thinking is that every referendum on proportional representation in this province and in the rest of the country has failed, and that if you sort of take half-measured approach to it, that is bound to set up a failure. Mm. So I'm really not sure um, which of those two scenarios is, is Right. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm struck by, and I, I had was talking to a member of the yes side uh, on air here at NL last week, and I've heard the same sort of line from David Eby and, and other government officials, and, and that is that oh well, we we don't have much time. The 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 timeline's too tight to have, have two referendums, and we have all these deadlines. Uh, but you know, the government can't really say that. These are the government's deadlines, Hamish. And I I keep kind of shaking my head at this, you know, placing yourself in a rush and then blaming a rush. Uh, that's right. And, um, you know, what they, they appear to be anxious about uh, is to have the referendum and give elections BC opportunity to implement a new system for the next election scheduled in 2019. Of course, there's no guarantee with a minority government that the next election will happen in 2019 anyway. We were talking about the by-election uh, just a minute ago, and that might upset all of these calculations. And one of the things that's really distressing about this referendum, uh, uh, impending referendum, is that it's become so partisan. 
uh, with the Liberals dead set against it and, and the NDP, well, the Greens definitely for it. And as I say, I'm not quite sure where the NDP sits on this, as opposed to the last two referendums that we had in BC, which followed the Citizens Assembly process, which were nonpartisan. And uh, that is the, uh, that, that to me would be preferable to make this nonpartisan and have the citizens engage in a deliberate uh, set of um, considerations before making a, a change or deciding on a change that's really fundamental to the operation of the political system. Absolutely. Uh, Hamish, always a pleasure. Thank you much, sir. You're welcome, Shane. Thank you. Okay, there we go. University of the Fraser Valley Associate Professor in Political Science, Hamish Telford. We'll take another quick break on Inside Politics. Come back with a roundtable on women in politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. On Thursday morning on the NL Morning Show, I co-host, I had a chance to put together a panel to discuss women in politics. What are the challenges? Why don't more women run for office? We discussed the issue with women in public life in two different levels of government. Let's join that conversation now. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Radio NL News. It's the NL Morning News with Howie and Shane on 610 AM. Good morning, Shane Woodford here, uh, taking over this part of the show to uh, talk about women in politics. Uh, I'm joined in studio by Kathy Sinclair, Kamloops Councillor, and on the phone by Kamloops Member of Parliament, Kathy McLeod. Uh, both welcome. Thank you, Shane. Good morning. Good morning, Kathy. And by the way, uh, Kathy McLeod, uh, happy belated birthday to you yesterday, I understand. Uh, two days ago now. Two days ago. There we go. Uh, but anyway, happy birthday nonetheless. I'm really excited to have you both on and talk about uh, the issue of women in politics, the challenges you face, uh, how do we encourage more women to run, uh, that kind of thing. I do want to start off by the, by acknowledging the obvious. I am a man, so I'm going to try uh, in this uh, conversation to sort of minimize sort of my role and just facilitate the discussion here. Um, also, uh, because you're both obviously named Kathy, and I don't want to cause confusion because one's on the phone and, and one's here in the studio, I'll just address you by your full names if that's okay. Sounds great. Okay, so uh, uh, off the top, uh, obviously you're both women in politics, one civic, one, one federal, and I'll start with you, Kathy McLeod. What, what drove you to take the step into public life? I had always been exposed to politics uh, growing up, and I think when you live in a family that the conversation around the dinner table includes politics, where some of your relatives are active in politics, you're a lot more aware of both what is happening, you pay attention, and there's more opportunity. So I've always had an interest, and I've watched what's going on. Interestingly enough, I, looking back in my university uh, Facebook, or not Facebook, it was the yearbook at the time, and the inscription under my name was politics, politics, politics. I was surprised when I went back and read it, but I guess it's been part of my blood for a long time. Interesting. Kathy Sinclair. Yeah, I'm not from a political family or background at all, but uh, I've definitely always wanted to make the world a better place, you know, as as maybe cheesy as that sounds, but right. uh, have a positive influence on things. Um, I was I was involved with a, a number of groups when I was in high school, um, you know, clubs and, and trying to bring people together and, and have positive discussions and move things forward. And then, um, you know, definitely a bit of an uh, advocate for various causes into my 20s and, and uh, 30s. And then I will say that our neighbor to the south and, and seeing what happened there uh, in terms of who got elected as president kind of spurred me to take the next step. And it, it wasn't something I had anticipated, but if I can make a difference in a small way on a civic level, I'm, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about doing that. Perfect. Okay, so let's tackle the issue. I uh, did some research here. International ranking on uh, political representation by women in the country or in the world. Uh, Canada ranks, uh, ranks 61st as of May 2016. 26% of women are represented at the federal level, uh, even though uh, over half uh, in North America, over half the population is female. So uh, we'll go back to you, Kathy McLeod. Uh, what's holding women back from running for office and how do we facilitate more involvement? So I think there's, I was thinking about this topic this morning when I knew I was going to be discussing it, and I think 
there is what has typically been non-traditional roles. And I look at my son who chose to head down the path of nursing. It wasn't that mm-hmm. there was, um, you know, specific barriers in those in this way. It was really sort of a culture of traditional roles, non-traditional roles. Things have changed over time, and certainly, uh, you know, for women. Uh, you look at, they go back, it's the fathers of confederation. It wasn't the parents of confederation or the mothers and fathers of confederation. Things have changed and what, uh, you know, was a traditional role is not necessarily a traditional role anymore. But I think there's some tools that need to be put in place. I have never, ever believed in quotas. I think that uh, women and men need to be on the equal playing field in terms of how they enter into politics. But there's a group called, for example, Equal Voice, whose job it is to give some women some the knowledge, the support, uh, and some of the skills that they might need to take on a, a role in politics. So I think, you know, there's ways that we can look at how we support uh, and again, I'm going to go back, men or women in non-traditional roles. It could be females who want to be a pilot, females in the trade, men in nursing. Sometimes we need a, a little bit of extra support to encourage that direction. And Kathy Sinclair, you're nodding your head as you're listening to Kathy McLeod here. Yeah, I like that, uh, people in non-traditional roles, because um, Kathy McLeod makes a very good point there. And um, yeah, I think we do need to encourage women to run. We need to encourage um, people who are not currently represented um, to run. And sometimes it's a matter of confidence. It's a matter of, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Um, So that's where the encouragement comes in. Um, But, you know, men have been elected and running for office for many, 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 many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shane, you and I were just talking before we went on air here that women were not even considered persons in Canada until mm. 1929 when you had the famous five really lobbying for that, that uh, women were eligible to sit in Senate. So that's not even a hundred years ago. So it's not a huge surprise that not more women are running for office. And all women in Canada were not eligible to vote until 1960. So that yeah. that includes, you know, uh, women from East Indian and Asian backgrounds, as well as Aboriginal women. So, um, you know, we look at who's around the table in political office and we, you know, I think there's a clear correlation. So one of the things that motivated me to run is I want to be that role model for the younger generations. Uh, in researching for the segment, I was fascinated to discover that there are, there are plenty of countries outpacing ours in the terms of gender equality in the political level. Some of them are Rwanda, Bolivia, Iraq, Kazakhstan. And it was interesting because it, those are those are fairly new democracies. And, and I noticed a company that did some research on this found that uh, equality is easier to have in newer democracies or countries that have recently gone through a conflict. So a uh, question to you, and I'll start again with you, Kathy McLeod. Is it is it some of those older institutions that were sort of constructed through, you know, decades of, of, of male-dominated society? Are, are those the hardest to change? You know, that's an interesting statistic that you brought up, um, and I wasn't actually aware of it, to be honest. And and I'm wondering, is within your research, did they actually have some reasons behind it? So, so to be honest, I can't really answer that question. Yeah. But I'd be curious to know a little bit more about you know what the authors actually speculated yeah. on it. Okay, I'll send you some stuff. But basically, it was the premise was is older institutions are harder to change. Well, if you're building a democracy, literally today, if let's say we had a country somewhere in the world that just said, okay, we're going to build a parliament from scratch. It was easier to include equality right from the get-go than it was to change an institution that's been around um, 100, 200, 300 years or so. Kathy Sinclair. Yeah, I hadn't heard that either. It's really interesting. It it sort of um, brings to mind wartime and, you know, the men were out um, fighting and then women had this opportunity and this by necessity had to step up and were given that that ability to have a job and to um, fulfill roles that men traditionally had filled. And so maybe, like you said, that conflict uh, brings about that necessity and uh, everybody has an equal chance to step up. 
one of the things uh, from watching at one point we had uh, Kathleen Wynn in Ontario we had uh, Alison Redford and then Rachel Notley uh, in Alberta we had Christy Clark so at one point there was three of the biggest provinces in the country represented by women and it was fascinating watching Christy Clark because uh, gender stereotyping definitely still exists in our society and you could make a pretty good argument she faced questions that no male premier would face and I assume that women in public office would face those questions as well you know she faced questions about you know who are you dating and, and that kind of stuff uh, nobody would ask Gordon Campbell or Stephen Harper that uh, Kathy McLeod do, do, do we still need to change something at a fundamental level as far as how we view our society and, and how it how it works from both a male and female perspective we've come a long way I do believe that we have a long way to go I know certainly when I when I arrived in Ottawa in 2008, I was always very impressed in terms of, at least within the party I represent, the very respectful, um, equal team player that I felt I was part of. So I never had a feeling that, um, you know, because I was a woman in federal politics, I was treated any differently. Uh, so that I always actually appreciated. But you can certainly there's been some many stories in the press uh, recently in terms of not every colleague that um, is in parliament has that same experience so there's been you know a number of very difficult issues in terms of sexual harassment and mm -hmm. for the first time ever parliament is actually saying we've got to deal with this and predominantly it is women that are have been the victims of this so so i think again it's it's a culture shift it's changing you know personally i've uh, always felt very comfortable and i've never felt um that my opportunities to either run for office or to succeed in Ottawa have been diminished by whether I was a man or a woman, but I don't know that my experience is 100% consistent in, in Ottawa. Kathy Sinclair, you're obviously a little newer to the political scene. In my eight months of office, um, yeah, I would say that I have not uh, experienced any kind of gender gendered treatment I mean I'm a person first and I also happen to be a woman but um, you know when it comes to making political decisions and having discussions uh, it's been very respectful and you know looking at who we had around the council table when I first moved to Kamloops uh, we had Marg Spina, Tina Lang, Nancy Beppel mm. um, and uh, Nellie Dever and I think I'm missing one. Um, anyways, there was five five women there, and you know, I I remember thinking, wow, this is fantastic. Um, I I still don't think it is the norm for women to, you know, hold office, but I do think we're getting there. We're making some progress. I'm curious, and in, in looking at some of the numbers, it seems that women are more prevalent and more participatory at the civic level. Uh, than they are at, at sort of provincial and especially at the federal level. Uh, Kathy McLeod, any idea why is it is it just that is that the first part of a wave maybe, or is there something in, in those two different political arenas that, that women are more attracted to? I was involved in civic politics first as a councillor, then as a mayor in the '90s. And again, I talked earlier about how I was always interested in politics, and that was my opportunity to uh, provide. Um, to go in at a local level, find out what politics is all about. But I think, you know, for me personally, at the time I had three young children, the idea of federal politics, and especially as a member of parliament from British Columbia, whether you're a male or a female, the, the, if you have young family and you're traveling across the country, you're spending mm. a lot of time away from your young family. And so that's a consideration, again, male or female, uh, for me, it would not have been a choice when my children were young. When I actually entered politics in 2008, my youngest was off to university. So for me, it was really an ideal opportunity in terms of taking on the commitment, taking on the travel, and not being as um, conflicted in terms of the things I might be missing at home. So I think to be involved in municipal politics when you have young family is a little bit easier than it is certainly federal or provincial. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. How do you feel about that being a civic politician, Kathy? Yeah, and I, I think uh, women do tend to get involved first on a local level. You see a lot of women running for school board, and, and perhaps it's because they are in, 
you know, kids they're involved are in, in their, yeah, their, their kids are in school. Um, and so making change at a local level may be sort of the, the entry point. And I think you're speaking with Selena Robertson tomorrow and, and she started also in civic politics. Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, I think too, the, the time commitment, it's, um, it's, it's fairly flexible. It's it's doable. You can juggle it around. It's not a full-time thing either, and there's not all that travel involved, so that probably also makes it appealing. Uh, again, doing research, one of the things that uh, Equal Voice pointed out, you, you brought them up earlier, Kathy McLeod, uh, is is that uh, the public policy debates, especially in the federal provincial levels, um, aren't generally about issues that women care about, and it's going to take some kind of critical mass to get those conversations there. As a federal politician, do you feel that way? Do you feel that, that you issues that women are, are most concerned about are, are largely missing in action or are no? Um, I'd absolutely disagree yeah. with that statement. I think I look at the committees I've been involved with. It's been Status of Women. It's been Health Committee. I'm currently the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs, uh, whether it's you know economics, defense. So those are issues that are important to all Canadians. And I would say no to that particular observation, at least for me personally. Mm. I think there's many, many issues that are absolutely critical for uh, both Canada and of interest, whether you're male or female. So uh, again, that's an interesting statistic I hadn't heard about, but for me personally, it's not accurate. Okay. Uh, Kathy Sinclair, how do you feel about that from a civic perspective? Um, yeah, that sounds a bit strange to me as well. Uh, although I will point out that, you know, the reason that we have some of the things that we do have um, currently are because women have gotten involved and brought things to the table. And so, you know, we, we look at things like daycare and, um, and you know, the school system and things like that. And those are not particularly women's issues, but when you have the experience that some women um, in office have had, you're able to bring things to the table that perhaps had not been brought forward before. Hmm. Uh, okay, so uh, you, Kathy McLeod, you brought up the issue that you're against quotas, and I, I was going to raise that as a topic as well. Uh, I was looking at the, we obviously know that the federal and the provincial NDP have a, a quota system basing, uh, trying to get some of those gender and, and other discriminations out in candidates. Uh, they do seem to have a higher degree of those candidates running within their parties, provincially and federally. Uh, if we're not going to do quotas, then, then how do we tackle the problem? So first of all about quotas, yeah. I would hate to feel that I was a quota, that I was a federal politician, the conservative candidate because they wanted so many females because I want to feel that I've um, made it on my own rights and that I've that that's why I'm here, not that I'm part of a quota. But do women need some extra support and is it valuable for them to have something like equal voice, have the party make that extra bit of effort in terms of reaching out. So, for example, there's an election in 2019, there's many open seats. Making that extra effort to call potential women candidates throughout the country to, to give them the support that they might need to enter politics, absolutely. But certainly when it comes down to, you know, nominations and being out there looking for votes on the doorstep, you want to not have any, like the whole idea that you'd have sort of a proportional representation list where you'd have so many female candidates, I mm. fundamentally disagree with that. Um, but I think there is ways to support and encourage without doing quotas. Okay, uh, Kathy Sinclair? Yeah, I want to be elected because uh, people think I'm the best candidate, not mm. because I'm a woman. Um, that said, we we do need to work on things. So we do need to encourage women to run. And, um, you know, for example, Councillor Arjun Singh is, is a man who was elected, who's very passionate about this as well, and, and was very encouraging and was, you know, part of that, my decision to run and, and uh chatting with other women as well who have run for office and are in office really helped propel me but it you know it, it's not an easy decision no. um, and I think whether you're male or female uh, being out there in the public and you know whatever level that is you are you're making some sacrifices but um you know so there's a lot that goes into that decision okay we got about well, one minute left and it's pretty tight but really quickly 30 seconds to each of you uh kathy mcleod your your message to people out there women out there who may be considering uh stepping into public life 
you know what? Go for it. Uh, if you want to give me a call, I'm always happy to chat with uh, women that might be interested in stepping into public life. It's a great opportunity and it's a great path to head down. Perfect stuff. Kathy Sinclair? My message is you're not going to know everything right off the bat. And don't wait until you think you have to know everything about every issue until you run. Because if you did that, nobody would ever run. So if you want to do it, trust yourself and have the confidence in yourself that you're going to be able to figure things out. Awesome. Kathy McLeod, Kathy Sinclair, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, there we go. Kathy McLeod from Ottawa. Kathy Sinclair here in the NL Studios. And that's it for today's Inside Hashtag BC Pauly. My thanks to my guests, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, Chris Gardner, Hamish Telford, Kathy Sinclair, and Kathy McLeod. See you next week. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. And that's it for today's Inside Hashtag BC Pauly. My thanks to my guests, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, Chris Gardner, Hamish Telford, Kathy Sinclair, and Kathy McLeod. See you next week.